I wanted to start off this morning just with a bit of maybe housekeeping, so to speak. I, I wanted to uh, tell you about something that um, a class member came to me after uh, the class last week and passed along I thought was really interesting. Didn't change the point, and he was careful to point that out to me, but Lance, who's often in our class, I think, as you know, he's involved in, has been in the past uh, very much involved in law enforcement, and uh, and now teaches in that area in criminology and so forth. And he was mentioning to me, you know, that we were talking about Jacob and the fact that uh, the corpus delecti, I didn't use the Latin phrase last week, but, you know, that, that Jacob never had a body insofar as Joseph was concerned. Very difficult to prove a crime or, or prosecute a crime without a body. I mean, that, that is true. Not impossible, though, with modern criminology, and he was telling me about this, that with modern chronology and modern technology, um, there are circumstances under which they actually prosecute crimes in the absence of a body and are successful. In fact, he said, under the right circumstances, uh, with the right uh, forensic type evidence that, that we have the methods of being able to gather now, he said they had about an 84% success rate with that. So, um, but he was quick to say, doesn't change your point. One of the ideas, and this would have come up um, with something I said, just to get into this specificity. Uh, last time, you know, the brothers brought home the coat of many colors, right? And as sort of proof of the fact that something evil had befallen him, to which they let Jacob draw his own conclusion about a wild beast had torn him up, they took and killed an animal, right, and put blood on the coat. Probably wasn't enough to make this point, but that is one of the ways. If they find enough blood to be able to substantiate that life would be impossible, you would have died, you would have bled out, and they know that it's your blood, that would be one of the ways. Wouldn't have been able to do that in this case, didn't have that technology anyway. But in any case, uh, I wanted to mention, I thought it was very, very interesting and always glad to have feedback. We want to start this morning in Genesis 47. I, <laughs> I knew this from the beginning. I was looking at this and just thinking about it a little bit more this week. I think uh, had we been able to elongate this quarter by about four more Sundays, um, I probably would have been able to do most of what I would, would want to do. But I knew from the beginning that wasn't going to happen, and I also knew from the beginning it would be necessary to do some of the things that I have done with the class in order to make it through and have some kind of an ending. In other words, not just start, stop two-thirds of the way through and say, oh, we're out of time, too bad. So if you remember the opening lesson that I had, and I apologize, I meant to give you on the back of your, don't look, it's not there. I forgot to submit it. But um, I have a paper that, that I entitled um, Jacob in Summary, The Life of Jacob in Summary, where I give you all 12 lessons and just show you the titles there again, if you have notes, you have all that anyway. But I started off with Jacob, the early years, and we're ending today with Jacob, the final years. And you can see there, we're not at the end of the story. We're in chapter 47, and I mentioned to you that Jacob gets prominent again right at the end. He's never too far away from this, because remember, he's really the progenitor of the 12 tribes, the most recent progenitor of the 12 tribes. He's the father of them specifically. So there's a good reason for this. But there's also a good reason why the emphasis is now shifting away from Jacob because it's the story of redemption that's progressing forward. That's what God wants to tell. And you can't keep talking about Jacob. You've got to start developing Judah 
and all of those types of things to, to get the story of redemption in motion. So the handouts are back again there on the lectern inside the door now. If you missed that, either now or on the way out, I think you can avail yourself of that. We're going to read from several verses in Genesis 47. Look at three incidents in the final years of Jacob today. So I'll introduce it with this particular scripture. Then we'll have prayer and then we'll get into today's lesson. I want to read verse 1 first of all just so you you have a feel for what's going on in this chapter. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, my father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come now from the land of Canaan and they are now in the land of Goshen. So that's sort of what's going on. The, the family has just arrived and uh, the verses that we're not going to read that come immediately after verse number one is where Joseph introduces five of his brothers to Pharaoh, remember that? Gave them the instructions to talk about the fact that they were shepherds and all of that type of thing. We're going to join this and read about four verses beginning in verse number seven. So look here, then Joseph brought in Jacob his father and stood him before Pharaoh. So after the five brothers, now this, this scene. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many are the days of the years of your life? As to why Pharaoh asks him that particular question, I think you have a small clue in the prior verse. Jacob brought in, or Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and look how it words it, and stood him before Pharaoh. So I think what this sort of indicates is that his age is transparent. He's at a later stage in life. It's a contrast from what we have in the first verse, or the second verse rather, where it says there, and from among his brothers he took five men and presented them. He didn't need to stand them. But you notice the difference in language. So I think it's just his demeanor, the obvious fact that he's quite elderly at this point, that provokes that question. And he gives an answer to it. He says, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and, few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. One more verse. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's living and powerful and profitable. All of those things we read, whether in Paul or in the writer of the Hebrews, we thank you that it's also ever new and ever fresh to us, which is a takeoff of the fact that it's living. And so we can read a passage over and over again, and even though we have great familiarity with the content of it, you come to us often fresh and anew with your spirit to give us new application, new help, new insight even. And uh, thank you in addition to that ministry of the Holy Spirit working in our hearts and lives as individuals, that we stand on the shoulders of 20 years of church history of of even in just the church age, of people who have studied your word, shared their insights with us, preachers, writers, theologians, all of these types of people. And so we have such a rich heritage for which we give you thanks and praise. And with that, probably need to mention the fact that there are people, we know we're not informing you, we're just praying about it, that don't have your word in their language and that don't have a Bible. And other places in the world today where people are persecuted for having it, so we pray for that. 
and pray that you will continue to gather from the kindred tribes, tongues, and nations of the earth a people to your name, that the church age may soon be complete and we may have the privilege of being with you. And we just trust that you will bless us now in our class today, bless the other teachers as they finish up, and bless Pastor Cameron and Bruce Curlett as they minister to us in our regular services today. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen. Well, we can only summarize, as I mentioned here, and I sort of said that earlier, but I want to point out something to you that I think is really interesting. We, we've been talking about the fact, the life of Jacob, okay, that, that could stand on its own as the title to the class, and really is the main titles of the class. At the same point, though, I've given you a subtitle, The Struggle for Blessing. So it's never very far away. No matter what's going on, either the word blessing or lessons related to this is never very far away. In fact, this is where it starts, if you remember, in the early years, that early scene that we have, and we talked about this, is Jacob, the old Jacob, likely an unconverted Jacob, still sees value in the blessing and big deals, cheats, his brother Esau, out of it, out of the birthright. And so he's had this interest from the very beginning. Well, now look how his life concludes because, I mean, it's really here. If you look in chapter 47, in the passage that we read, it's twice mentioned with Pharaoh. He blessed Pharaoh. Then, what is chapter 48 about? Well, chapter 48 is about the particular blessing that he bestows with insight that God has given him almost uh, probably you would say a prophetic type insight, Ephraim and Manasseh, he is blessing them. So we'll just read one verse here, verse because we're not going to deal with this. I just want you to see it. Um, verse number nine, Joseph said to his father, these are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, bring them to me that I may bless them. And that's the essential element of this particular chapter, verse chapter 48. Um, in fact, this is singled out in the New Testament in Hebrews 11:21. If you're if you're if you're the writer of the Hebrews and you're writing a chapter where you're talking about the heroes of faith, and uh, we had an adult Sunday school teacher at the ministry in Pennsylvania. It was the main auditorium class, uh, the adult Sunday school class, that the main one in the auditorium, and that's he named his class the Hall of Faith, after Hebrews chapter 11. And if you were the writer, of course, we realize the Holy Spirit is leading this. What incident, if you're led to say something about Jacob, would you pick out? And it's quite interesting. This is what he picks out together with another point, which is where we'll get to that verse a little bit later in the lesson. Then you get to, so there's two times. Then you get to chapter 49 and verse 28. And again, we'll just read this verse. We are coming back to this. But in verse number 28, all these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Now, that is really interesting, isn't it? But it's a different Jacob at this stage of the game. It's a Jacob who through all of life, in his ups and downs, the Lord is teaching him and keeps reminding him, you know, blessing comes from God. You may have innate gifts. You may be shrewd, you may be smart, you may be even capable of manipulating people, you may be a sharp businessman, whatever else gifts I've given you, but you know what? Ultimately, blessing comes from God. And he's been learning that life, and so are we. We keep learning that life because we have a tendency, even though we technically know it, 
sometimes the first thing we do is rely on ourselves. Self-reliance is Adamic. If you think about this, it's just a part of what we get from Adam. And so, but in Jacob's life, it's a particular thing to notice. So it's, it makes a lot of sense that you would see this at the end. We're going to talk about three key events today, as I mentioned here. And in each case, you'll find a word underlined. And it's the lesson that I want to derive. Not that you couldn't derive more, but it's the lesson that I want to derive from each of these three scenes. And the first one, if you look down in a point that's not yet given to you, point B is the word testimony. Do you see that underlined in your notes? Testimony. So this scene is quite interesting. This is the one we've already read. An audience with Pharaoh. I just want you to think about that for a moment. This scene is filled with all kinds of amazing contrasts, paradoxes. Think about this for a moment. Who was Jacob in the eyes of Pharaoh? I mean, had it not been for Joseph, who was Jacob in the eyes of Pharaoh? I can give you one word. Nobody. <laughs> really? You think about this. What's Pharaoh care about some nomad from the land of Canaan? I mean, Jacob is not a huge landholder there. He has some wealth, but Pharaoh doesn't, Pharaoh's not going to be impressed by wealth. I mean, he's not an official in Canaan. He's not a king of one of the Amorites or the Hittites or any of these types of people. There's no city that's named after him, and he doesn't live in a major city. He's a shepherd. He's a, a pilgrim. He's a stranger in the earth. So what's Jacob to Pharaoh? Nobody. So these contrasts are between, but when you think about it from God's perspective, he's everybody. God is not impressed with Pharaoh at all, other than the fact that it is God who puts up kings and puts down kings. And the folks in our government would be well to keep that in mind. God can put you up and God can take you down. Well, to God, this man, is, this man is the one through whom he's working the program of redemption. Pharaoh, eh, okay, other than the fact that God knows and put him there. God's not so impressed, but God has a, God has a, a special interest and a special love, a sovereign love and grace that's invested in Jacob. And so it's interesting to think about this. Now, when we think about testimony, so here's my question to you. If you were in a situation like that, because really what I've said to you sort of mirrors what we have in this audience today. I mean, there might be stuff that we don't know about each other in here today. Maybe there's somebody in here who's sitting on $500 million. Maybe. If, if so, you've kept that well hidden. Congratulations. But is God impressed with that? People sometimes are impressed with those kinds of things, but I wouldn't say that we're nobodies, but for the most part, none of us are somebodies. I mean, we're not impressive in terms of the world, right? We're not the mayor of Greenville, if that impresses you, or the mayor of Greer. Uh, we're not the chief of police. We're not a U.S. senator. We're not CEO of a corporation. We're just us, common, ordinary people. And so I can identify with Jacob, and I think if I were put in a situation like that, 
And I mentioned this once before in a different ABF class. We had uh, someone in the class at the time who, who gave an interesting response. Not everybody heard it, but those that did laughed. But what would you do if, what would you do if the President of the United States walked in here? Well, I, I don't have to like his politics to respect the office, right? And it, it would be an important part of my testimony to offer that respect. If I didn't offer that respect, I think that would be a poor testimony. I might have to bite my tongue along the way, but I would do that. And I think that when you look at the three things that I'm going to show you here, I think that you have Jacob leaving a powerful, powerful testimony with this man. You're not going to get the chance to say much. So what you say better count, and it does. So first of all, I see ingredient number one, gratitude. Life has taught Jacob to be grateful. Dr. Bob Sr. used to have that saying about when gratitude dies on the altar of a man's heart, that man is well nigh useless. There's a lot of wisdom, savvy, and truth in that. But he comes in with blessing and he goes out with blessing. Don't miss that. You, I mean, if you miss that, you really miss a significant point. It's the first thing on his lips. It's the last thing on his lips. It says, Jacob, Joseph brought in Jacob. And the very next phrase at the end of the verse, Jacob blessed Pharaoh. On his way out, Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Why do I call this gratitude? What does Jacob have to be glad or grateful about Pharaoh? Well, I can think of some things. I can think of his treatment of Joseph. Most of us tend to take pretty kindly and notice it when people are good to our kids. You ever notice that? I mean, you can do a lot of things that might, might be sort of negative, but if you help somebody's kid or you show an interest in somebody's kid and they know that, usually that makes quite an impression. I think of that here. I'm a parent. I understand all of that. Not all of it, but some of it. I notice that here. And I also would venture, although there's no documentation because we don't have the exact words that he said when he did this. But I would think that undoubtedly this blessing was given in the name of Jehovah. If that's the case, then we have another layer of testimony because Pharaoh doesn't know anything about Jehovah except anything he's gleaned through Joseph. But thinking about what I said earlier about paradoxes and contrasts, without question, the less is blessed of the better. Where do I get that? Hebrews 7, 7. It was true about Melchizedek. But this man, that's Melchizedek, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And it is beyond dispute, the writer of the Hebrews says, that the inferior, that's Abraham, is blessed by the superior. So I want you to think about it, folks, because see, in the worldly sense and in the, spirit, in the world and in the spiritual realm, it's like a total flip-flop. That's exactly what you see in Luke chapter 16. When the rich man is in this world, it's one way altogether. He fared sumptuously every day. He was clothed in purple. All of those things. The moment he died, the man that was at his gate, who was so poor off that the dogs had to lick his sores in order to give some healing and relief to him, 
He's in Abraham's bosom being comforted, and the rich man is in hell and lifted up his eyes being in torments and is pleading for just a drop of water. It totally reverses. And so that's what's kind of going on in this scene. I mean, Joseph come, or Jacob comes in there, and who is he to Pharaoh? Nobody. But he is really somebody in God's eyes. And when he blesses in God's name, particularly when God is in that, there's a lot to that, but testimony is what I'm after here. Humility, too. Think about verse number 9. Humility comes with the passage of years, too. If it doesn't, you haven't learned anything. Humility is also, or pride is also Adamic. Humility is not. So we spend a life learning to be humble. And the moment you turn around twice and close your eyes, pride will sneak right back in. And the human heart is so deceitful and so wicked that it, pride manifests itself in subtle ways that it's hard even to recognize until sometimes later the Holy Spirit just kind of gives you a little prompt. And it was just in a word you said or in a reaction you had or whatever. But where do I see humility? Well, I, <laughs> he makes a confession here when Pharaoh asks him how old he is. He doesn't have to volunteer this information. But he does. When he says, few and evil have been the days of the years of my life and have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their sojourning. Why was that true? Mostly of his own. He made the bed he slept in most of the time. He brought most of these woes on himself and had to learn a lot of hard lessons, as do we. The last thing is faith. Now, this is, think about this as another contrast. He's talking to a man who lives in a palace, and he's never lived in anything but a tent. I just want you to think about that for a minute. That's striking, really. And he makes it a point to say that to Pharaoh because he refers to himself as a sojourner. Twice he does this. My sojourn and the years of my sojourning. What is the writer to, well, what does Peter tell us in 1 Peter? Well, he tells us we're strangers and pilgrims. I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims. Abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. And he's confessing to him, really, you know, this has been my lifestyle. This the world is not my home. And this is a point that the writer to the Hebrews brings out about the patriarchs in general, not, not with a name attached to it, but when he gets to the end of talking about Abraham in that section there, he says, these all died in faith, not having received the promise, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged. So he was making an acknowledgement. He was making a confession to Pharaoh that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Folks, when you can't say too much, and when to say too much would be a problem, he packs a wallop in what he says. And I tell you, to me, this is the making of a powerful testimony. Few people are given the opportunity that Jacob was given there. It's one of the things I love about the book of Acts. I love reading about these opportunities that Paul got before kings and all of these types of things and how Paul deported himself in those contexts. But you know, we could kind of go in reverse gear and we could say something about the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree because 
If you go back to chapter 41 and verse 16, this is something that I think you'd have to say that by God's grace, Jacob was successful in transmitting this value, if not to all of his children, certainly to Joseph. Because back when this occurred in chapter 41, and Pharaoh says, hey, I've, I've had these bad dreams, nightmares if you want to say, and they must mean something, and I've heard that you can interpret dreams. And in chapter 41 and verse 16, the first thing out of his mouth is, well, yeah, you know, I could do that, and I, but I need to come out of this jail first. He doesn't say anything like that. It just says, Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And for those of you who are in the class on Joseph, you might remember when I mentioned this, it's very terse in the Hebrew. It's just basically, not I. Two words, not I. Not me. Folks, I'm thinking that this was great fodder for Daniel. Maybe other people in the Bible, but not a lot, got these types of opportunities. Daniel did. Because, I mean, he was through all those different kings. Nebuchadnezzar was the key one that we think about, but there was Darius, and there was Cyrus, and there was the... I mean, and he stood before these people. And when Nebuchadnezzar had that dream, he didn't trot himself out and portray himself as, you know, like the wise men of Egypt or, or Babylon. He distinguished himself from that. He said, God, God, God gave me the answer to this. Save me and my buddies. So, powerful testimony. We've got to move. A solemn request. So, it probably isn't a bad idea to think about this a little bit. Um, we have some people who may be more prone to take this admonition than others, just by reason of age, but you never know about these things. But when you get to the end, don't let that sneak up on you without having done some thoughts, thought work. Because if you don't have a plan, legally the state has one already for you. And if you don't express your wishes, then other people may be making those decisions for you. Jacob doesn't leave that to chance. And what I want to say is here that the instructions and details that he gives concerning his death are to me, and here's our lesson, they're a powerful reflection of his faith. So I'm just going to say it right now. You want the end of your life to be a powerful expression of your faith? You're going to get one last opportunity to talk, even though you can't talk. You're going to get one last opportunity unless you take one at the cemetery, which, by which I mean unless you have a tombstone or something that has a, a, a stone marker there that has a verse or something like that. That's going to be your last opportunity other than he being dead yet speaketh. So what does he say in these instructions that he gives? Chapter 47 Verse 29, let's read those verses. Um, I have to pick the pace up here a little bit. But uh, when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh. There's the old patriarchal, this is a solemn oath in other words, and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt but let me lie with my father. See, these are the instructions concerning his end. 
carry me out of Egypt and bury me in the burying place, their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me, and he swore to himself. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. So there's three things I want to mention to you here that are going on too. First of all, he says, do not bury me in Egypt. Technically, all right, think about this now. Technically, would there have been anything wrong in being buried in Egypt? Probably not. Probably not. But it's not what he wants. It's not the testimony he wants to leave. It's not reflective of his faith. The reason that it's not reflective of his faith is simply because of the fact that he lived his life in the belief that God was going to give him that land. And he lived his land, he lived his life striving to have that Abrahamic blessing. And God had over and over again in Genesis 28 and other times in his life had assured him that he would be the inheritor of that land. That was the promise. He staked his life on that. He put his faith in God and trusted in that. So for him to reflect that faith, it's important. He wants his funeral to reflect his lifelong faith. Some of this stuff gets a little bit, people have different ideas, so I'm not going too deeply into this. I don't want to get into a fist fight with anybody. But he says in the second place, let me lie with my fathers. Now, think about that expression in the Old Testament and put it together, lie with my fathers. Now, that would have been true literally if you were buried at Machpelah. That's not always possible for us today. And most people don't have a, a family mausoleum or something where there's multiple. You might be in the same cemetery. Uh, God has worked it out that way for us, but my brother and me. But we, not everybody has that opportunity. So you have to understand at the outset, why is this reflective of faith? Because that's symbolic. It's symbolic of a great reunion of believers. Lying with them is true in a different sense. He's already with them at death. Whether you think it's Abraham's bosom and that's separate, or I incline towards that belief. But I'm just saying, however you look at that, he's already with them. You put that together with this other expression, chapter 49, verse 29. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. So there's the two expressions. Gathered to his people, lie with my fathers. This, these are expressions that are indicative of faith. So I just ask you, you have faith today that at death you will be with the Lord? You believe that? I mean, don't look at me. The Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, doesn't it? And that's where they are. Because when he comes back at the rapture, it says they are with him. And in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 22, I'll give you a verse that I didn't give you in the notes, but which I, I always love it when I read this. It just it says a lot to me that I think we sometimes miss. Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 22 Again, not a lot of time to explain the context of this, but I need to get to chapter 12. He says, 
But you are come, you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels, think about that, in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. That's where you're going to be when you're with the Lord. My wife was telling this story yesterday. We were at Campbell's Covered Bridge, and she was telling this story about how her uncle Sid, who was, he was still in England, right? He didn't move here. When he passed away, about the last thing he said before he passed away was, he called to his wife and said, do you hear the trumpets? She didn't hear any trumpets. And it just got me thinking about a funeral service where um, it, 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 I thought about it right away. When they ring those golden bells for you and me. And I had a soloist come sing that song at a particular service that I, I knew that would be meaningful to the family. When they ring those golden bells. That's his face, see? And then this is where that Hebrews verse comes in. Let's look at it. I think I have it here for you. So, by faith, Jacob, when dying. This is an interesting little interpretational matter here. By faith, when Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his, what's that last word? Staff. All right, I'm reading back in Genesis at the end of chapter 47. And it says, swear to me, and he swore to him. And the last sentence in the verse and in the chapter is, then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. So which is it? You think there's a problem? No, there really isn't a problem. But there is an explanation. And the explanation is simply this. You know, I think you know, you've heard preachers say this, or you've taken classes and know this to be true. See. Hebrews, when you, when you write Hebrew, you don't write the vowels. So it's, it's incorrect to say Hebrew, do, Hebrew doesn't use vowels. You can't talk without vowels. Try. But they didn't write the vowels down. So when the Masoretic text was formalized, they used what they called vowel pointing. So little symbols would indicate whether it's an E, a short E, a long E. This type of thing, an O, a long O, for the vowels. Well, the consonants of the word bed in Hebrew and the consonants of the word staff in Hebrew are the same. So it depends how you vowel point it. It depends how you vocalize it. You can vocalize it as bed, or you can vocalize it as staff. Not a problem either way. He was in his bed. But there is something to be said for why. And when the writer of the Hebrews see, God has put his own divine seal of approval on this staff idea. It doesn't exclude bed, but in that it's quoted this way in the New Testament, it's taken from the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament. That's how the Greek translation of the Old Testament rendered this. It rendered it staff. That doesn't necessarily exclude the idea of bed, but it does say God the Holy Spirit said this is the point that I want you to get from this. 
What point is that? Well, let's go back and read chapter 32, verse 10 together because it's been a long time since Jacob needed a staff. What's he doing with it at his deathbed? The staff is the tool of a shepherd, right? He hadn't been doing any shepherding in quite some time, if you think about this. So why has he got it with him at his deathbed? Because it was a lifelong companion. It was a little bit like the rod of Moses. Chapter 32, verse 10. When he makes this great statement to God, I singled this out before. I am not worthy, he says, of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan and now I have become two camps I mean when he was out there at Bethel in those first days and nights from home he's got nothing but the clothes on his back and this staff he didn't have anything but a staff now he has 12 sons at least one daughter Seventy people in Egypt. One of them is the prime minister. He's wealthy. He may not be anybody in Pharaoh's eyes, but he is somebody. But God gave it all to me. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom is no variable and the shadow of turning. So this is the significance of this. This worship is to, to let his sons and his family know You better look to God the way I've learned to look to God because it all comes from Him. We can say more, but we don't have time. A final reckoning. Do you ever wonder about this chapter 49? I mean, I had intentions of preaching a series on this, and I just didn't get to it. I mean, I had preached one a number of years before on the 12 apostles, and I wanted to come back and preach one on this because this is the 12 patriarchs. And in this chapter, Jacob has something to say about every one of them. Now, it's often called the blessing of Jacob, but you would miss a lot if you just think that that's all it is because it's a combination of prophetic insight. Where do you get that? Only from God. God has given him some kind of insight, just like God gave Joseph insight with those dreams. In some way, God has communicated to him something about the future, about the future of these tribes. And it's a mix of that insight together with what he knows about them as their father. Because notice verse 28. Well, we'll read verse 1. Jacob called his sons, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. That's what tips us off. There's more going on here. He's not just sort of guessing at this. But when you get to verse 28, there's a little phrase here that you you don't want to miss. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them. But look at this. Blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. In other words, he told them what was appropriate for them. In some cases, he renders lavish blessings. and other times, he renders rebuke and insight into their character. So it's not just all that. So in that sense, since God has given him this, it's the discharge of a final duty. And to be faithful to the end in what God has given you to do, that's the message. I'm going to give you some examples, but we don't have a lot of time for this. 
So, you know, we talked about this back with Reuben and back with Simeon and Levi. There were times when Jacob, it seems, didn't say much. It kind of seemed like he was off his game and he held his peace. Now, again, we don't totally know because the, maybe the record's just silent, except in the case of uh, when the, that outlandish event happened with Dinah, it does say this here. So, verse number 5 of chapter 34, Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace. Then you get down later in the chapter, the sons are back now, but Jacob still holds his peace, and he lets his sons do the talking. Verse 13, the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully, because, I mean, Jacob could have stepped in and said, no, we're not doing this. This is against our values. But he held his peace. Like I told you, he was backslidden then. You get to chapter 35, you have the situation that happens with Reuben. This is unspeakable, but all we have is one verse. We have no insight into anything that Jacob may have said. It just says, while Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. It just says, and Israel heard of it. But boy, if he was silent before, he sure isn't silent now. Look at this. Verse number three, Reuben. You are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity, preeminent in power. Look at those lavish descriptions of what could have been. He was the firstborn to him, was entitled two things, a double portion, number one, and the leadership of the family, number two. He lost them both. He lost the double portion to Joseph. Ephraim and Manasseh were adopted and given the portions. And he lost the leadership of the family to Judah. Uh, this chapter 48, verse 22, I'm not sure. Some of the other versions will give you this marginal reading. It doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. I think you miss an important point with it, but who am I? Verse 22 says, Moreover, I have given you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope. Well, that helps, doesn't it? That I took from the land the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. We don't even have a record of that. We don't know what he's talking about. But if you take the, the, the normal traditional rendering of this, as I've given you here in the notes, I've given you one portion above your brethren, then it makes a lot of sense. And Simeon and Levi, let's read about them. Verse 5 well, we can finish reading about um, Reuben. Unstable is water. Think of water in a pan. You've got the pan two-thirds full, maybe three-quarters full. You put this thing on and turn it to high because you want it to boil. You walk off to do something because you know a watch pot never boils. And so you're off in the other room. First thing you know, it it. It, it's unstable. It gets hot like that, and it jumps up around in the pan, and the first thing you know, it's over the edges, and if you've got peas or something in there, you're going to get white foam and all kind of other stuff going all over the stove. That's what this means, unstable is water. No self-control, no, no discipline. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. It's just like, if they didn't know it before, what an exposure. It's just that one blunt sentence. He went up to my couch. Like, it still shocks him to have to even say it. C. 
Simeon and Levi are brothers, weapons of violence. He's got a lot to say. He makes a moral judgment, though he said nothing before. He makes a moral judgment on this now. Let thy soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. I don't want anything to do with this. Even though they're my sons, what they did was absolutely wrong. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed! That's bad news when somebody capable of blessing and cursing levels a curse. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. And here's the pronouncement. Here's the, the penalty. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Ooh, we got to quit. That's what happened, too. I mean, if you think about it, Simeon was dispersed within Judah, and Levi, or, yeah, Levi was dispersed. At least there was a redeeming feature to that. Judah gets the leadership. The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor a lawgiver from between his feet till Shiloh comes. So let's just look at this in closing. Dedication to these three things at the end. Testimony, faith, and duty. That's pretty good. I think it gives us the reason to say this is Jacob at his best. Few and evil might have been a characterization of the earlier years, but he finished well. And folks, I just want to tell you, it's nice to begin well and finish well, but if you didn't begin well or you had some mess-ups along the way, finishing well is really important. Father, bless us. We thank you for the ground we've been able to go over. Would you just encourage us? Anything that was not from you, just let that fall to the ground and be blown away as chaff. But those things that are from you, help us with them in Jesus' name. Amen.